Standing under the fobbed, impendent belly of time. Tell me the truth, I said. Teach me the way things go. All the other lads there were itching to have a bash. But I thought wanting unfair. It and finding out clash. So he patted my head, booming boy. There's no green in your eye. Sit here and watch the hail of occurrence clobber life out to a shape no one sees. Dare you look at that straight? Oh, thank you, I said. Oh, yes, please. And sat down to wait. Half life is over now. And I meet full face on dark mornings, the bestial visor bent in by the blows of what happened to happen. What does it prove? Sod all. In this way I spent youth, tracing the trite, untransferable trust advertisement. Truth. Hello, and welcome to Words That Burn, a podcast about poetry. Each week, I read a poem, look at its inner workings, and hopefully, show you what makes it tick. This week's poem is Send No Money by Philip Larkin. Before I begin, I have a suggestion. Try to find a copy of the poem somewhere so that you can read along. Philip Larkin, it would be fair to say, had a grimmer outlook than most on life. It was said by his friends that he had a fierce commitment to a pessimistic outlook. In fact, his dominant themes were death and sorrow. And there seems to be, at least to me, an air of melancholy about much of his work. Despite all this, there is a dark sense of humour running through each poem at the same time. All this and more is present in the poem that I've chosen for this episode. Born in 1922 in Coventry, England, his time there seemed to instill within him a kind of class consciousness a real awareness of the difficulties and perspectives of working-class people. This class consciousness is especially surprising given his privileged upbringing as the son of a treasurer and, after that, an immensely elite education. Despite this privileged upbringing, his poetry seems to be designed to be enjoyed by everyone, not only those with an education rivaling his own. Critics and fans alike have lauded the new style of poetry introduced post-World War II. It was a style that could be read by educated and uneducated alike. A style that laid bare the tortures of the modern soul, according to one critic. This new style of poetry happened around the globe. But in England, Larkin was at the forefront. These torments of life were everywhere. One such torment is expressed in this poem that of time passing. The opening lines set the scene. Standing under the fobbed, impendent belly of time. Tell me the truth, I said. Teach me the way things go. All the other lads there were itching to have a bash. But I thought wanting unfair. It and finding out clash. To explore these difficult themes and concepts, Larkin has created a kind of dialogue, a staged conversation, to give voice to two different points of view. It is all at once biographical and fictional, a fusion of the two. 
Larkin often utilised this as a way to imbue a genuine sense of emotion and voice, born entirely from his own experience, to his poetry, whilst also providing his reader with a narrative tale to follow. This is a technique used time and time again by the poet. The first stanza introduces us to the imagery that will recur again and again within the poem, that of time and metal. The very first lines fuse the imagery together. Larkin creates a character of time. We know this by the use of the capital T. He then goes on to describe his physical form. He has a fobbed belly, a reference to the old pocket watch style clocks worn by nurses and doctors. Time's belly, mimicking the rounded form of the timepiece. The word impendent adds a note of tension. It means just about to happen. It's a clever bit of wordplay from Larkin, as directly after that, the conversation begins. The speaker here, we can assume, is a young boy, based on the context of the rest of the poem. He demands something of time. Tell me the truth, I said. Teach me the way things go. It's direct speech, though there's no grammar to help us here. We have to work it out from the words I and me. Larkin does not hold the reader's hand and moves throughout the poem in a way that suits the structure he has chosen. There are eight lines to each stanza, with the fourth and seventh, then fifth and eighth, rhyming in each one. Words like there, unfair, clash, bash. This choice adds a rhythm to the poem. The first four lines being slower and the rhyming technique speeding up the last four. It is not unlike the swinging pendulum on a clock. The poem turns more obscure as the stanza moves on. All the lads there were itching to have a bash. In this fictional scenario that Larkin has created, there seems to be a group of young men in attendance. Itching to have a bash here is a strong colloquial term for wanting to have a go. To have a go at what is still uncertain. The final two lines of the first stanza bring us firmly back to the perspective of the speaker. But I thought wanting unfair. It and finding out clash. He directly rejects what the other lads want and states that he simply has no interest in having a batch. It and finding out clash is unusual. And really, reading it aloud is the only way to make sense of it. He's stating that the moment, it and learning that is finding out, are two completely different things. The reader is left slightly in the dark as to what it might be. To understand more, the second verse needs to be tackled. So he patted my head. Booming boy, there's no green in your eye. Sit here and watch the hail of occurrence clobber life out to a shape no one sees. Dare you look at that straight? Oh, thank you. I said, oh yes, please, and sat down to wait. There's an expansion on the character of time here. He seems to take on a more fatherly role. Here, he begins to talk back to our boy. Here, he claims that there's no green in your eye. This is a play on the idea of your eyes green with jealousy. When the speaker in the first stanza talks about the other lads here itching to have a bash, Time recognises that there is no jealousy in what the boy is saying. The boy simply wants to learn. We come to realise in this stanza and the previous stanza that the boy is talking about life. When he says the other boys are itching to have a bash, 
he means that they want to experience everything, whereas our speaker is content to sit and learn. Time recognizes our speaker as something apart from the others and directs him to observe how life is experienced. Sit here and watch the hail of occurrence clobber life out to a shape no one sees. Here the imagery of metal and time are repeated in actions that seem to mimic the work of a blacksmith. A little of Larkin's own philosophy creeps in here. Life is clearly formed in his worldview from countless experiences and from the use of the word clobber we can guess that the majority of those are not pleasant. Hail is a synonym for relentless and so it seems overall to be an exhausting prospect. The most important line of the set is to a shape no one sees. It challenges the notion that life and your purpose in it is a clearly defined thing, that one should have a calling. In the world of this poem, life's shape is chaotic. Time then extends both a question and a warning. Dare you look at that straight? It is, I think, a recognition by time that life is hard and often jarring. It is no small thing to experience. It is an act of courage. The boy of the poem simply embraces the second option, saying, Oh, thank you, I said. Oh, yes, please, and sat down to wait. He assumes a passive role, happy to observe life rather than take part. In that final line, there is a sense that time will now pass him by. He is hoping to observe and learn something of life from the outside. Larkin himself said that he always felt that he was a keen observer of the world around him, and more to the point, that he was quite good at it. This was an opinion echoed by his many fans and critics throughout the years. It is perhaps for this reason that he enjoyed being considered an outsider, often going out of his way to ensure that he was thought of that way. He moved to Hull in England in 1955, claiming that he enjoyed that it was out of the way. Here he is giving both his thoughts on Hull and the direction people take in life. I never thought about Hull until I was here. Having got here, it suits me in, in many ways. It is a little on the, on the edge of things. I think even its natives would say that. I rather like being on the edge of things. One doesn't really go anywhere by design, you know. You put in for jobs and move about. Unfortunately, the decision to sit and wait seems to have been a poor one. As, moving into the third verse, the speaker seems to have realized that he was missold on how to experience life. Half-life is over now, and I meet full face on dark mornings, the bestial visor, bent in by the blows of what happened to happen. What does it prove? Subtle. In this way I spent youth, tracing the trite, untransferable truss advertisement truth. There is a distinctly bitter tone in this stanza. We've jumped forward in time. Now the speaker recognizes that life is half over. The obscure quality of Larkin's verse returns in the lines, and I meet full face on dark mornings, the bestial visor bent in by the blows of what happened to happen. His use of alliteration here is fantastic and adds a consistent beat that carries you through the strange imagery. The face the speaker meets each morning is his own in the mirror. It is dark now, unhappy, 
bestial. The strange image of the bent visor is another conjuring of the idea of a blacksmith and metalworking. I think this choice of image is important, as again, it signifies the hard work that comes into experiencing life. The choice of this profession over another is not surprising. Metalwork is intense. It requires endurance and commitment. It is making something out of a hard, unworkable material. It seems to suit the philosophy of this poem. Larkin makes sure to impart on the reader the sense of randomness of these events. There is no structure, no clear path, just what happened to happen. He doubles down on this type of logic in the final four lines. One of the central ideas of Larkin's poetry is expressed in the rhetorical question. What does it prove? Sod all. This question proves extremely vexing for the reader, as it denies them any kind of resolution to the poem. There is no grand revelation of how the speaker or poet discovered the true meaning of life, or even something as simple as finding joy in the random moments of it. This denial of resolution is well noted by academics, particularly critic Gillian Steinberg, who wrote, in many cases, the attitudes and opinions of Larkin speakers often change midway through a poem. And while the final assertions or questions are logically given the last word on a poem's argument, what we find from looking closely at the poem's endings is that the supposed resolution of the various opinions presented in the text is hardly a resolution. We can see that this poem follows such an outline. The speaker in the beginning is an inquisitive young man who welcomed the chance to observe rather than experience life. Now he has changed completely. He is a tired, older man whose assertions of curiosity and a will for learning are a distant memory. This idea of a question to challenge the audience is present too. More than that, the speaker says it doesn't matter. He is simply recounting how he chose to spend his time. In this way, I spent youth tracing the trite, untransferable trust advertisement truth. Alliteration with the T sounds here bring the poem to a swift close and pushes the philosophical tone of the poem all the way. The central argument of the poem is against the notion that there is a purpose to life. The trust advertisement he refers to is that society gives people this idea of purpose as a kind of safety net, something to soothe and comfort. A truss being a medical instrument that keeps all your organs inside. In this way, the truss advertisement is a reassuring ideology that there is some purpose to life, that you can find your vocation. The speaker spent much of his life tracing or following this truth, only to find now that it is not the case. The final mention of the advertisement finally gives us an idea of why this poem is titled Send No Money. Send No Money was an old and predatory advertising technique that allowed people to order an item and then pay it off in installments. There was no cash required up front. In a sense, this notion of send no money was a false security, a false promise, a false truth. It convinced people that there was no need for money up front. But in reality, 
the installments that they paid had interests and rates attached, and actually did more harm than good in the long run. In that same way, the notion of purpose in life is a false security against the randomness of being. Larkin seems to be saying that you don't need to find your purpose to have a good life. And if you keep looking for one, it might just do more harm than good. So why this poem? I think it does an excellent job of showcasing just what made Larkin an excellent poet. On the first reading, the poem is steeped in direct language, and more importantly, the common language of England at that time. Phrases like sod all and clobber are littered throughout, and yet the poem is also intensely philosophical. As previously stated, Larkin became part of a brand new wave of poetry that dealt with the torments of the average person, whilst never talking down to them. He uses the grand language of previous English poets in a way that both enhances the poem and also keeps to a simple point. This poem challenges the notion that you must find your purpose, that you must find your vocation, that you must love your job. Using his characteristic pessimism, Larkin makes it clear that no, you don't. What's your reading of the poem? I'd like to point out, as always, that this is my interpretation, and as such is very much up for debate. If you'd like to talk to me about it, you can reach me in a few ways. Send me an email at wordsthatburnpodcast at gmail.com. You can find my website, www.wordsthatburnpodcast.com, where you'll also find the show notes for this episode, complete with references and research. If none of that suits you, I'm on Instagram. Just search Words That Burn Podcast. There you can find helpful study guides and bonus content. If you've been enjoying my podcast so far and you'd like to help me out, please consider leaving me a review on whatever platform you enjoy it on and consider sharing it with people who might enjoy the poem of the week. This episode was written and produced by me, Benjamin Colopy. The music in this week's episode is by Scott Buckley and is used under Creative Commons license. I really appreciate you taking time out of your day to listen to me and hopefully you'll hear from me again soon.